Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is Ryan McLeod and he's going to tell you all about mining on nuclear power. Yeah, blows my mind. But this is something that is going to be very real and very apparent, I think, coming over the next decade. So sit back and enjoy. Thank you, Ryan, for coming on. Before we get into the show, please make sure you are stacking your sets. This is going to be a very, very memorable time to be buying Bitcoin at these prices. You have just gone back in time to 2017 and Bitcoin is around $16,500. What are you waiting for? Even if you are new here, you have just gone back five years in time. Start stacking. Do it in a safe manner. You can start a dollar cost average plan. Do not, please do not hoon your life savings into Bitcoin or any investment for that matter. Dollar cost average is the best way to do this. And you can do that with a few trusted companies within the Bitcoin space, been around for a long time. SwanBitcoin.com are in the US, or Relay.ch are in Europe, and you can use them if you're from the UK. Coin Corner are in the UK, and you can use them if you're in Europe. And Hoddle Hoddle are global. These companies are going to help you stack sats. With Swan, Relay, and Coin Corner, you can set up your fiat cost average plans and just every day or every week, whatever you decide to do, buy some Satoshis. With Hoddle Hoddle, you have a KYC free. KYC is know your customer. You do not have to put any details into the platform. You join the platform, you find an offer, and you make a payment. That is it. Check it out, hodlhodl.com forward slash bitten. Once you have these sats, you might want to consider taking them through a coin join to improve your privacy. You can go to wasabiwallet.io and download, is a desktop client, just download straight from the website, wasabiwallet.io. You create a wallet, the usual way you'd create a wallet. You'd write down your words, the usual way you'd write down your words, hit receive and run some coins through. Just sit back, see how it feels to you. And then once you have them 100% private, you can take the next step and get them onto a cold storage signing device. I can recommend shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. If you use the code bitten at checkout, that will give you a 5% discount. They have the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin only hardware wallet. It's a great piece of kit, trusted by many Bitcoiners. So go and check it out. All links are on my link tree along with other companies that are offering you discounts for their products or services just find the link tree in the show notes check out absolutely everything there there's clothes on there there's books on there there's games there's everything everything a bitcoiner might need from a bitcoin company that wants to offer you a discount the social layer of Bitcoin has not been talked about enough and you can improve the social layer of Bitcoin by meeting Bitcoiners in real life. Meet Bitcoiners and be happy. Orange Pill app is now live on the uh, Andro- uh, excuse me, on the Apple Store. Android is coming soon. 
and they are going to be uh, popping up at conferences in 2023. So look out for Orange Pill App and sign up if you haven't. Here's the rip with Ryan. All right, guys, we are live. We're here with Ryan McLeod. We're going to talk about mining Bitcoin uh, with nuclear energy. But first of all, Lauren wants to uh, step in and ask a question of Ryan. Um, So what is nuclear energy? Uh, Nuclear energy is electricity or heat that is harnessed by using the process of nuclear fission to generate heat and then collect that and either use that heat for various processes or run it through a turbine as steam and turn it into electricity. And the process of nuclear fission is basically the breaking up of large, unstable, um, heavy elements I went, and then they, when they break apart into smaller elements, they release a lot of energy. And then that's a nuclear reactor collects that energy and is able to convert it into electricity. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. How, how it can do that. Yeah, a nuclear reactor is basically just a giant boiler. They heats heats up the water. They capture it in, through a heat exchanger, and then that gets turned into steam. And it turns a turbine just like natural gas generators or coal generators. Just any anything that spins a turbine can generate electricity. Wow! As eleven years of age, Lauren, mm-hmm. or at eleven years of age, what have you ever heard about nuclear energy? Anything at all? It's bad for the environment. Okay, and where would you have perhaps seen an example of nuclear energy being bad for the environment? On television or, you know, whatever you've watched in the past. Any ideas? Any clues? No, I just remember a lot of people saying it's bad for the environment. Not me. Yeah, definitely not you. So who? I don't know. Name them, shame them. I just nuclear energy is like bad for the environment oh the news the news which i don't know you you must be watching that in secret and someone else's home because you don't watch that here no what what about the simpsons oh yeah simpsons what do they do in the simpsons well homer simpson works at a nuclear energy place and how is it portrayed? Badly. So anybody that's grown up watching The Simpsons already believes that nuclear energy is bad and somebody like Mr. Burns, who owns it, is a bad, monopolistic, kind of old, grumpy Scrooge guy. So you see what television does to your mind? Yeah. All right, well, Ryan and I will get into this. Do you want to say goodnight? <laughs> Yeah, have a great night, Lauren. I need to be thinking about this all night now. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, Simpsons was not the best representation of nuclear power because, yeah, now people have images of Mr. Burns stashing barrels of green goop in the neighborhood park or the the, the drain out into the lake that created Blinky, the three-eyed fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not not the best representation of the industry. So there's 
there's a lot of effort out there, many advocates trying to properly educate people on the technology so that we can at least get to the point where public perception is high enough that we can build more reactors and prove that a lot of these concerns are mostly unfounded. Like there's definitely some concerns and there is safety risks, but like any technology, you innovate your way through it. You come up with better safety mechanisms. You create def defense in depth strategies. It's yeah. The likelihood of, of any catastrophic events happening with nuclear in the future is very improbable. Have you ever gone down the rabbit hole of, why the Simpsons ever chose that, like Matt Groening ever chose that storyline? Have you ever wondered whether that was heavily funded by certain other industries? I wouldn't be surprised if there was some influences behind the scenes, but I don't know. It just, it's like on the surface, it's just a fun story. He's middle, middle-class family. Dad works at a power plant. Bosses like your, your typical tycoon type of personality and yeah who knows I, that's actually yeah i'm going to make a note of that and dig down that rabbit hole just to, just to see if what what might be found i guarantee you you're gonna find all kinds of stuff i've not been down it myself but this, this is the way television works that that is those who fund it own the narrative it, it could sure be do. any kind of sitcom. If you look back at any sitcom that you've grown up, there was probably some kind of hidden narrative behind it. I mean, what what was it when you were growing up? Do you remember? Oh, God. Well, I grew up, like, I was born shortly after Chernobyl, so there was a lot of that legacy hanging over the industry. Right. And then, yeah, definitely the exposure to The Simpsons, and then there was, like, the like the 70s the kind of pop stars making their their speeches about nuclear power being bad and, and various accounts like that but uh yeah it's it's been interesting like i only ended up in nuclear power by getting a job as a lab technician and like i'm a, technically not even in nuclear power I, I i support the power plants but i'm actually just a, a a laboratory technologist that works in the nuclear research field so i support a lot of things going on in the industry but it's more from a, a research and laboratory analysis angle. So how, how did that kind of come to be? Was that just uh, following your nose when you were going through the education system? Like, did I, I enjoy being in the lab and want to carry on this kind of uh, field of investigative kind of uh, scientific work? Well, basically, I played into my strengths in high school was math, chemistry, physics. And then I was, I probably had the intellect that I could have gone on and done something like a full on engineering, but I was not mature enough at the time to pursue that and would have may or may not have been successful. So I, I, I went into the college technical trade route and became a chemical technologist. Basically, I learned how to do lots of just laboratory technical stuff and operate instruments that do the heavy lifting and then i had a few jobs in the industry in ontario and then ultimately after my most recent layoff before i started working at canadian nuclear labs i had a hour or a year-long period where i was uh, unemployed and then i just kept throwing resumes out to everywhere that had good uh good work prospects for chemical technologists and getting into the nuclear field is a pretty uh pretty good space to see 
the wider landscape of, of just like the whole energy systems as a whole, because here we do a lot more than just like nuclear research. We do uh, like energy storage research, hydrogen research, def like electrical engineering type of stuff. Like, so there's a pretty wide spectrum. And now we're even getting in on, on fusion, which that was announced that CNL is collaborating with fusion company before that big announcement. What was it yesterday or two days ago that uh, some fusion company in the United States had just successfully created more power from a fusion reaction than they had previously. So that's another project that's being collaborated on here at uh, Canadian Nuclear Labs. So, so lots what, of cool what, stuff. Canadian Nuclear Labs do what exactly? What was the, the kind of uh, remit you have there? It's essentially like the equivalent of the like the national laboratories, like the like the United States has like the Argonne the National Labs and what is it, the Idaho National Lab? Like there's there's six or seven in the United States, but this is Canada's equivalent where we we do the the big research and it supports the the wider industry. And we're also going to be building what is likely going to be the first small modular reactor in Canada. It's going to be the first demonstration unit for this this type of reactor. Well, then there's several other ones that are going to be built at various other sites. And that's a project that Canada is very, very excited to move forward on with uh, using our leveraging our existing nuclear uh, power infrastructure, like right from mining to fuel fabrication and reactor design and construction. Like we've, we've got everything from, yeah, from mining to the decommissioning and waste processing. So, All right. Very... Okay. C could you... For, for someone that's never studied nuclear fission, which I'm probably, uh, I, I'm, I, I think I can safely say on behalf of most of the listeners, we have no idea what that even means. Could you give us like a, a little timeline, like a historical timeline event of uh, when and how nuclear energy came to be uh, originally, then kind of like the arc up until now? Yeah, it'll be very kind of low level. Like I, I do, like I, I know I've, I've read a lot of this stuff and most of the research that led to the early development of nuclear power and, and researching nuclear fission was happening in the early 1900s. And then it really started to ramp up later into the 30s. And then that was when the predominant amount of of all, all of it all started to coalesce and they started to commercialize the ability to both make nuclear power and make nuclear weapons as we saw it later in at the end of the 40s how that how that went and then the because there was a lot of commingling between the weapons and power production there's a lot of like confluence between a lot of people's understandings that they that they're, they're two different completely different technological streams they share like a similar components but but power and weapons are completely separate industries like, mm. except for they both use uranium but it gets processed in completely different ways whether it's being used in weapons or used in reactors um so there was that timeline like the first reactor that was built here in canada it was sometime in the 40s and it was and the research that was being done there was also supported the the Manhattan Project and various other nuclear research projects that were going on at the time. And because it was a race for everybody at 
and lots of lots of geopolitical tensions at the time. So everyone was trying to develop this technology at the same time and be the first to bring it into the market. Uh, and then, yeah, like later in the 40s, just there was more commercialization of nuclear power. And then it just it was kind of going very successfully into the 70s where like many countries like like you're in France, they built like 40, 50 reactors in a very short period of time, like within from the 60s to the 80s. Um, and then many countries just kind of stopped building nuclear reactors after like the, the seventies and eighties. And a lot of it comes down to politics and, and financing and other, other market influences. Like, Cause you'll have moments where the price of, of, uh, hydrocarbons goes down and then there's no incentive to invest in nuclear. And then it goes through a dry period. And then, and then the price of hydrocarbons goes up again and then everybody starts looking into nuclear again. But then that time lag in between causes like issues like you haven't, the supply chains aren't kept as, as robust and your, your labor force isn't as available as it was before. So that's a lot of the problems that they're running into now. Like if you hear about the three actor being built in the UK and the other one in Georgia, that's been plagued with cost over overruns and time overruns it's a lot of it has to do with just they haven't built any of these reactors in decades so there's the expertise and capabilities just haven't been well maintained whereas if you go over and look at like korea's nuclear program they're getting a lot more practice at building these reactors like russia hasn't stopped building reactors they're building a new one in egypt and a new one in turkey right now the yeah the south koreans just worked with the United Arab Emirates. They just finished up a, a large uh, set of reactors that will be fully operational within a year or so. So there's a lot of action in nuclear power, like in the Eastern countries. And there's there's the will to start doing it in the Western countries, but there's definitely some obstacles that need to be overcome before we can fully get back on our feet again. Yeah, it, it's been... I feel as though I've been gaslit for pretty much my whole life about nuclear energy. And it's only in the last five or six years, I suppose, being down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole, coincidentally, that you start <laughs> changing your mind and your views and listening to, you know, so I listened to your interview with, with John Vallis and that was like, whoa, this is um, really crazy. And then you read, uh, uh, books or, or listen to podcasts with Alex Epstein, um, you know, the moral case for fossil fuels and things like that. And you realize, man, they've really done a number on us. They really have. You know, I, I was born in the late 70s and I've grown up thinking, actually, in the 70s, wasn't it? What wasn't did the next catastrophe going to be an ice age? And then that suddenly changed to acid rain, I remember. And that suddenly changed to the um car no the ozone layer hysteria and then that suddenly changed to the carbon dioxide grift which has been really probably their their crowning glory that they, they've managed to really nail down that one hard on people yeah it's it's quite bizarre and these same actors they've they've been hating on uranium far longer than they've been hating on carbon dioxide it seems there's always a moral panic out there for some activist group to to latch on to and who knows what influences are behind them but it's it's definitely been a stick in the side of of the nuclear industry but uh things seem to be turning around these days 
Like even just over the last year, sentiment towards nuclear power has come around significantly. It's taken a major energy crisis to do it and watching watching uh, the Germans show the whole world how what not to do so we can all use that as a as a as a lesson there's lot, lots of lessons going on these days of of what not to do whether whether in the energy space or the finance space but uh hopefully we can learn from these lessons and everyone else can do better cuz like in Europe right now although Germany's shut down a lot of the reactors they've halted the intention of they're shutting down their last three so they're going to be kept online for at least the foreseeable future uh belgium had committed to shutting down their nuclear reactors like 20 years ago as a political decision and then the closer they're getting to the time where they had committed to shutting them down they're starting to kind of look around and being like maybe that's not the best course of action uh like all the surrounding countries are are looking into nuclear like all the scandinavian countries like nuclear like Poland likes nuclear, uh, like Romania. I was, um, uh, I had a brief moment to chat with uh, Prince Philip when I was out of adopting Bitcoin, and I was trying to pitch him on uh, maybe Serbia could use a nuclear reactor. Like, why not? Especially if he's he's a Bitcoiner, and you can see how that starts threading together, and you can make a you can mine a lot of Bitcoin with a nuclear reactor. Hey. You ask a really sorry answer a really basic question because I was talking to the kids before I came down to do this interview, and uh, I was asking them just pitching them basic questions like I was with Lauren at the beginning of this. And um, my fifteen-year-old daughter said, "Oh yeah, well nuclear uh, comes from nuclear power comes from uranium." I'm like, "Okay, pretty good." It's one way. Yeah. What What's uranium? And then there was silence. And it's like, ah, we just use these words. We don't know, like, I don't know. Could, could you explain to us what, exactly what uranium is? Ah, I don't have a periodic table on the walls around me. But uh, uranium is, it's a heavy, heavy element. It fits in the, that section. If you do look at the periodic table, that segment that kind of fits beneath everything else, um, it's referred to uh, as a act actinide yeah an actinide and and then there's the lanthanides and it fits in the same section as like uh, plutonium and neptunium europium there's a few other ones um but essentially what it is is the the makeup of the protons and the neutrons in certain types of uranium because that's another thing you get into it's not just uranium there's there's uranium 238 there's uranium 235 there's uranium 233 hmm. but in its natural form, the proportions are like 90, 98-ish percent uranium-238, and only a little small fragment of that is U-235 and then U-233. So to make, um, then U-238 isn't fissile in its current form. Like it can be, um, it can be uh, like bred into a more, uh, like a plutonium-239 and then use this fuel. Yeah, they call it like that's what they use the the breeder reactors is what they're called. It puts material that can can be made into fissile material into a state where where they can process it into something fissile. But the naturally occurring U two thirty five is what they're after for for creating the fissile reaction. So the the refining and uh, enrichment process will 
separate out the the U two thirty eight and make it a higher concentration of U two thirty five. So most reactors use about five percent U two thirty five, and then there's some types that use as much as twenty. And then like weapons grade enriched uranium is like ninety percent U two thirty five. So there's there's a very significant difference in the processing techniques for for getting these different grades of uranium to be usable in the different applications that they're used for. And then to create the energy with it, um, you, once you start the chain reaction by releasing a neutron, it will make contact with the, with the nucleus of that uranium atom, which is already unstable. And so then it will break apart because it's even more unstable when that neutron sticks to it. And it will break into two smaller elements and then it releases a little bit of energy or actually a lot of bit of energy and several other neutrons. So the way that they maintain the chain reaction is that they will have absorbers in the reactor that will absorb two of those neutrons and then one of them will continue on to cascade into another uranium atom and then continue just cycling that process. And if it gets going too fast, that's what the control rods are for. You, they'll They'll put the control rods in to absorb more neutrons and slow the reaction down. Or if they want to speed the reaction up, they can pull out the control rods and allow for more neutrons to, to form inside the reactor, creating more chain reactions. And then, yeah, the energy that's released from that is collected. Uh, most reactors these days use water or a pressurized water uh, type of system. And then that water collects that energy and it heats up and then through a system of heat exchangers and uh, and condensers and uh, turbines that gets converted into electrical energy. So how do we get uranium? We mine it. It's in the ground. It's all over the place. Like northern Saskatchewan in Canada is where our main uh, reserves are. There's lots throughout. Yeah, there's lots of uranium reserves throughout Africa, throughout South America throughout uh, like Russia and Kazakhstan, like Australia, although they don't have any nuclear power, they have a massive, uh, massive uranium mining industry that they support, I think somewhere about 10% of the world's supply of uranium. And then on top of that, like uranium is just the primary one that we use. Eventually there will be reactors that are capable of using thorium as their fuel, but that has to go through a similar process, like I described with the breeder reactors, that it needs to be made into a slightly different uh, nucleide of thorium in order to be used as fuel. So it's it's a slightly more complicated process to use it than than uranium because it can just be like just some reactors, like the Candu reactors, can take fresh uranium basically straight out of the ground. It just needs to be processed into the right uh, geometry and and fuel rod shape, but it doesn't need any enrichment beyond the the uh, natural 2% amount that we need. But you can only get so much energy out of these with the conventional reactors. So that's why there's now efforts to reprocess and recycle a lot of this fuel to get more out of it than we previously have been able to with the traditional fleet of reactors. So that's where a lot of the advanced reactor and generation four types are going to come in where, where instead of using water as their main medium they're going to use either like a molten salt or uh, a high temperature gas or is it there's like liquid liquid sodium is one of them and then there's a graphite cooled type of reactor i'm probably missing a few but there's there's a lot of new designs that are being proposed to be commercialized and like most of them have already been proven 
throughout the decades, but just the way that it was easier to just choose one design and build lots of that similar design was more, made more economic sense at the time. So they just kind of stuck with that. And a lot of these new designs that are being proposed now were just sitting on a shelf for decades. And now they're just being brushed off and having new safety features applied to them. And we're going to start demonstrating and deploying them probably with before the end of the decade. Is the is this another sticking point in most people's minds? Like this idea that uh, uranium has to be mined and that's a dirty job. Do you come up against pushback there? Because obviously, we see the problem with uh, nickel mining and lithium mining and every other kind of mining that's ever lived, um, like the environmental impact that might have on the surrounding natural beauty or towns or villages or, or you know inhabitants around it. Is that a concern? Depends who you talk to. Like any realistic person knows that if we want to develop the technologies that we have available to us today, like we need the minerals and the resources in order to do it. And the only way to get them is is mining. Like, yeah, maybe we will have some innovative ways to improve that mining. Um, from what I understand, like uranium mining is one of the it's it's up there with the more more environmentally conscious cleaner mining that's available i uh most of it's done using like the like an acid leaching method where in, it's instead of like just clear cutting like large swaths of land and making giant holes in the landscape it's they'll, they'll seep an acidic solution into the rock formation and then that will absorb all the uranium into it and then they suck all that back up and put it into drums and send it off to the processing plant so like there there is definitely the risk of runoff but the technology for doing so has improved considerably over the decades that the industry has has existed and then it also depends on like the the quality of your ore grade like Canada has really high quality uranium that's easy to access, whereas some of the other deposits, while they possibly has more uranium available overall, the the grade isn't as high quality, so it takes more more resources to extract it and more effort. So it's it's just weighing your different trade offs for for how much did uh, what you want it to cost and how much you're going to affect the local environments and. It's there's a lot. The industry is a lot more conscious of of those concerns than than they had been in the past. Like there's there's definitely stories about like go go back into the 50s and 60s where they would just come into a community that had the resources available. They basically just strip mine it and leave leave all the the byproduct behind and and move on to the next project. But there's yeah there's a lot more effort to ensure that we we as an industry stay in that positive public light where they can see that we we take accountability for the messes that we've we've made in the past there's it's it's a very different management style but it's 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 better for maintaining the the, the public confidence in what we're up to and then the, the the last thing that we i hear all of the pushback about is the nuclear waste that seems to be like the 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 entry level normy kind of pushback against nuclear because nobody knows what they're talking about like you do because you work in it like you're a chemist you're a scientist you you work in the lab everybody else is just freaking parroting what they hear on mainstream media or what they've read in the newspaper that morning and nuclear waste is bad for the environment 
therefore we must shut down nuclear power because that is bad for the environment and it's catastrophic. Look at Chernobyl, like the, the poster child example, which, by the way, not that many people actually died during that, uh, you know, fallout. I think I think they can confidently say at least one. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there were like there's a few others that are tangentially like that. There's some people that ate ate uh, food grown in the area that that was possibly contaminated that then developed that some some illnesses related that they believe are related. But yeah, as far as definitively, there was there was at least there was just one or. Yeah, there was at least one for Fukushima, and I think maybe twenty for Chernobyl that were that they could tally up. But that's still, in the grand scheme of things, it's not much. Then, like Chernobyl now is a is a, almost like a pristine wildlife refuge because there's there's no humans around it at all. And then uh, uh, Fukushima is another interesting one because like you mm-hmm. can you can get pretty close to that facility, and the the dose rates that you're exposed to are are minuscule relative to like what like I could see on a regular basis working at a nuclear research facility, and like is uh, yeah, and Japan is taking safety incredibly seriously. After the incident that they had, they are going very far out to ensure that nothing like that could ever happen again. Like, uh, Which was a complete outlier in the first place. Like huge tidal wave. I mean, no one could have planned for that. Oh yeah. Oh, now they're building twenty meter three meter thick walls around all of their reactors on the way on the east coast so they're, they're not screwing around they're, they're going to need a hell of a hell of a wave to uh overcome what they're those fortresses that they're building over there around their plants and then yeah as for the waste um when i was i was recently in japan for the international youth nuclear congress which i was i won a contest where i got to promote an idea and that idea was to mine bitcoin with nuclear reactors um while i was there we got to go on a tour to one of the plants and see the casks where they store the nuclear like the spent nuclear fuel so they said that there was at least 60 bundles in these casks and they were they were just large drums probably I'd say about five, five meters tall and about two meters thick. And we, we were able to see the dose rate coming off of them. And it was, it was nothing. There was, there was nothing at at all. You could not see any appreciable dose coming from whatever was inside these casks. And you could definitely feel that there was heat being transferred from it, but that was about it. And the, uh, the tour guide gave us the whole spiel of how they, how they manage it, how they oversee it and how it's, how it's maintained. And that in the years that they've had it, they haven't had any issues and they're, they're very much looking forward to restarting their nuclear power plants in Japan. So these like nuclear waste, again, let's all blame the Simpsons. We believe it's just all put in a kind of like oil drum and then, pitched into the nearest uh, lake, uh, for want of a better picture. But what is in those drums? What it, what what constitutes nuclear waste? It's basically the, the spent fuel rods. They they come out, like the, the shape and size of them is the exact same as they came in, but the... And that's material... just uranium. That's, that's uranium um, in the shape of a fuel rod because that's the, the, the most efficient way to start chain reactions. 
Yeah, well, it was uranium when it went into the reactor, but then mm -hmm. as it gets exposed to the fission process, that uranium is converted into various other heavy metals, like cesium, different, uh, like some of it gets converted into plutonium, and there's 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 a whole list of the nucleides that it breaks into. You can easily find the uranium decay chain anywhere online and see what comes out of it. But yeah, once the fuel rod is has been spent and its its useful life has been reached then it'll have most it'll mostly still be uranium but then there will be this yeah a whole mix of other waste products that are created from the process of fission and a lot of them are the ones that are, are more harmful than uranium that need to be like if we want to reprocess it a lot of that is what gets separated out and that's what would be stored for the long term so overall the the total volume of nuclear waste that's created by the entire global reactor fleet is pretty minuscule. Like I've heard it quoted before as, as saying it would be, be like two football fields large and two and make three telephone poles high would contain almost all the nuclear waste that exists, which is really, Oh, in the grand scheme of things, not that much. And then there are various, um, uh, engineered solutions to storing it for longer term like there's a facility being built here at canadian nuclear labs called the near near surface disposal facility which will house it's like a, a pit type of uh situation where they're going to put low level and, and mid-level waste which is mostly just just generic trash things that got a little bit of contamination on them and then for the higher level waste so anything that that can't be reprocessed will be stored in a deep geological repository, which their their geological formations that have been scouted out by industry experts that have maintained their structure for hundreds of thousands of years that they want to basically just add a few engineering barriers, but take advantage of the natural formations and that the, the stability of staying in that form for many, many millennia and uh use them basically as as storage locations for these for the nuclear waste and then if you talk to somebody that's that's anti-nuclear they'll be like oh they're just dropping in a hole and forgetting about it it's like no like for for mm -hmm. one thing we may want to make we want to keep it accessible in a way that we may want to get it back so that we can get more energy out of it and that's just an irresponsible thing to do to just drop it and forget it. Like that's, that's the Mr. Burns mindset again, where it's just like, we want to prove that we are doing things right and well, like on behalf of the, all of the stakeholders that are involved in, in nuclear power. What's the shelf life of a, um, of a spent fuel rod? Uh, again, I'm assuming Tell me if I'm wrong. It depends on the quality of um, the the aura that you managed to bring in, uh, so it might vary. But how long can one of these things last, and how much energy can you can you get from it? Uh, I know the average fuel rod. Like it depends on the reactor type, but anywhere from like one and a half to three years. It and it, there's various factors about how the op how the reactors operated that that determine the the life cycle of a specific fuel rod. Um, and then as far as how much energy you get out of it, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but one thing that gets quoted by a lot of the, uh, 
like the pro-nuclear advocates and the influencers is that the, the entire uh, an individual's entire lifetime use of energy by like someone in a in a western country the the amount of uranium that you would need would be roughly the size of a soda can hmm. would be yeah so it's it's incredibly energy dense for for what it is like just, and we are pretty confident that we are going to be able to develop new reactor types and new fuel processing types that we're going to be able to get even more energy out of the fuel rods that we already have been using. That's the way technology works, right? Uh, and re recycling, you kind of touched on it, that you, you're not just dropping the spent fuel rods in a hole in the ground and walking away and whistling as you're uh, you know, kind of looking over your shoulder you actually might want to go back and get access to them because you assume that there's going to be a way to get more power from them or a way to mine, uh, not mine, uh, to, to utilize the, the, the waste products that has been left over after the uranium has been depleted. That could become useful in, in the future and used as power as well. Absolutely. There's there's still a lot of available energy left in in these fuel rods. Like the current reactor designs, maybe get like at most twenty percent of the available energy out of them. So there's mm. there's still lots of juice left that we can access, but it requires a lot more R and D technological development and yeah, some new reactors and proof proven that we can do it so that it can be developed at uh, like large commercial scale operations. It's like a lot of this stuff is it's either done in, in very narrow uh, like research ways. And there's, there's a few countries like the, the French have, have a, a way to reprocess the rea the reactor fuel. The, the Russians have a, have a technique that they use. It's yeah, it's, it's a work in progress to get it more, more commercially available and, and more abundantly used but as we're if we start to use new more nuclear power the incentive is there to have some way to recycle it and get more bang for our buck yeah that is all about the narrative shift isn't it because the last two decades it's all been about windmills and solar panels and we're all moving to net zero, this bullshit about net zero. <laughs> I'm a big Formula One fan and I watch Formula One and they've got on the back of them, Formula One will be net zero by 2030. Like, what the fuck are you going to be doing then? Like, you know, running around the track? Like, <laughs> it's completely nonsense. Yeah, it does make a lot of, uh, yeah, lacks logic in, in a lot of ways because, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the critics I, I run into for nuclear power, they they tend to ignore the entire like material supply chain of their preferred technology. So like when you build a nuclear reactor, your your costs are calculated from everything from your fuel processing right to decommissioning and waste management. So that is all put in and it's all basically front loaded and then it's amortized across the whole lifetime of the reactor. And typically the way that they'll recoup that is, is they'll, that's how they'll judge what to charge the ratepayers to, to recoup that investment. And then you have like other factors, like, like how much interest is on that capital. If you're spending billions of dollars up front, the difference between six and 9% makes it can be a, a lot at, at 40 years. 
so there's a big incentive to to build these things and and make the most use of them very early on but then yeah when you when you talk to like the wind and solar people they're like oh well our technology is is far far more affordable to build because we can build it in smaller scales and and we don't have to have as much regulatory concerns to worry about but then you start asking them about well how much material are you going to need to build the equivalent amount of windmills that you can put into a nuclear power plant or how much land are you going to use and then what about uh, transmission and various constraints like that and then they they start to lack answers like there's this crazy idea that they're going to build a giant solar field in the desert of morocco and then build a high transmission line to like to spain and you're like well by the time it gets there you're, you're gonna lose like half of it like yeah even Just I know build. that, and I don't know anything about this stuff. Even I know that is going to be lost in it's, transmission. It's just friction, really. But it's it. The longer you try to transmit electricity, the more losses that you're going to incur. So, the closer that you can use that energy that you're generating, the better. So that's why, like one one idea, I was I was talking with some of the guys, like. I really like I have a few regrets from like adopting Bitcoin. I wish I would have chased down down uh, Samson Mao and, and chatted him up a bunch, but I got <laughs> I got a few others. Um we'll, we'll put you in touch, don't worry. Because they're talking about the like the idea of like, yeah, we're gonna build these geothermal plants and then we're gonna build the transmission, mm-hmm. but then you gotta you gotta cut down a lot of forest in order to do that. And the, what I'm thinking is just build the, the geothermal plants where you got your basically your free energy, mine the Bitcoin with it, and then use that to finance building a nuclear reactor closer to the population demands and just one simple way to take out the transmission out of out of the equation by building it closer to where it's going to be needed because i i was recently when i went uh i had gone hunting the weekend before adopting bitcoin with my wife's family and the place where we do so there's a transmission line that runs god it's got to be at least like seven eight hundred kilometers from almost from corner to corner of ontario and it's three large 230 kilovolt lines and it's about a hundred meter just thick chunk of land that's just barren where those lines run and we were talking to her grandmother and she said yeah they just twice a year they just come in and they just spray that whole swath and just kill everything like scorched earth style to keep the plants from growing up around those those transmission pylons but like that's a that's a just one of those things that that people that don't fully grasp how the whole electrical system fits together is like that's not a very good environmental uh, issue if you if you start looking into how that's that is maintained so just different different variables to consider that until you get deep in the weeds you don't start to see it all holistically mm-hmm. or they fly the uh, the crazy helicopters with the massive blades like hanging down from underneath them right uh, and, and chop all the branches have you ever seen that oh yeah i've seen that like yeah the seen the linesmen out with their big big cherry picking trucks cleaning up the lines along the highways and yeah i haven't seen i haven't actually seen in real life, the the helicopter guys, but I've I've seen videos of it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty um, cool stuff. It's great. That's cool stuff. But like you know, for the environmentalist people out there, they're burning jet fuel to do that, right? If you like, just to chop the branches down, like eight hundred miles stretch, either side of an eight hundred mile stretch of transmission lines that are losing 
up to 50% of the you know, electrical load that is being generated at the source. It, it's nonsense. Like, complete nonsense. Yeah, we can be a little bit more strategic, but it, it, it comes into the factors of like, historically, we've had to build our generation at, at, at large scale and then that and that has to get transmitted to where the populations are. And, and like in some cases where like the, the reactors that are in Ontario, when they were built, there was like nothing there. There was, there was very little residential areas around them. It was just open field as far as the eye could see. And then as the decades came along and Toronto has been expanding outwards, the whole surrounding area of, of the two big reactors near Toronto has been completely overtaken by residential areas so then like you have to weigh like this there is the risk of like if something does happen however improbable it is you've got a lot more people in the vicinity that you have to be concerned about because it was the same thing that they were saying at the the reactor that we visited in japan like when it was built there was there was no population there it was just high transmission lines getting sent to a central facility and then distributed from there Actually, Japan was in the news this morning too. I mm -hmm. don't know if you saw that um, Tep no, Tepco, ahead. Tepco, the largest uh, like uh, utility grid operator in in uh, Japan, made an announcement. They were kind of cryptic about the words they were using. They were did their best to essentially say that they were going to start mining Bitcoin to improve grid resiliency without actually saying Bitcoin. It was like like high computing processes that are highly flexible and kind of the coded words that. The, the people like you and I will recognize like, okay, we, we see what you're up to. That's very interesting. So uh -huh. it's another big, interesting player getting into the Bitcoin mining space. Cause, and it's going to be uh, hugely beneficial for them because as they're sequentially bringing their reactors back online, they're going to have a substantial amount of capacity that they're going to need to find a home for. Because mm -hmm. I expect they're going to want to transfer away from the natural gas that they've been importing that's becoming very, very expensive and get back to operating their nuclear reactors that already have, they've already made some substantial capital investments into building them in the first place. Most of them are at the stage where they can start being uh, put back into operation. Some of them still have a little bit of more, the, the new safety uh, protocols that they want to put in place after Fukushima and then they just have to go through the regulatory approval process and then they can, they're expecting to have most of the fleet back in operation within like two to three years. So that's like, I think 16, 17 reactors, which that's, that's going to be a lot of power that they're going to need to find a home for. And it'll be an interesting and case study. It's cheap right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Like that's, that, that's what I was, was trying to tell everybody because it, and it's hard explaining it to it because I've been talking with people that are, that are, like electrical systems experts that do do modeling about how we can make hybrid energy systems work and how you can make make a nuclear reactor cooperate better with a variable energy source and like i i don't know how to tell these people but your models are kind of pointless now like you Broken. don't need you don't need to do all that work you're wasting time and effort you need to just figure out the best way to fit Bitcoin mining into every generator. Like I was reading uh, Steve Barber's paper that he wrote like a year or so ago, just that every generator should have a contingent of Bitcoin miners, whether it's like point, like a fraction of a percent of their capacity as much to as much as like 20, 30% of their capacity. Like it's, that would make perfect sense. And then 
balance that out depending on if you've got your intermittent sources and you've got your baseload sources because and then depending on how your policy works sometimes you, if you have favorable policy for your variable loads then they'll get to sell their electricity into the grid first when they're generating but then that throws off the economics of your baseload generators and and then ultimately everybody gets kind of hurt by this and then and then the, the other front is that they're everyone's fighting for subsidies from the government so that there's a lot of a uh, lot of shit talking across industries about who should get priority access to what the government's doling out because and like i see that as just it's such a fiat problem like mm-hmm. if if we could transition these people to seeing the what we see all of these problems just go away almost instantly but it's yep it's walking them across that and and you can only like i can only just like shake them is so hard and like you they have to do the work for themselves it's like this is industry that we find ourselves in is so bizarre in that way that like yeah you you can only lead them to the door but they have to take the plunge for themselves so this this example of japan that you gave this morning do you have any idea is is that a purely private venture or is that going to be state-backed or is that government or is it already government-owned well, TEPCO is like their largest um, grid operator. So it's like, oh, I don't know what the equivalent would be in France, but like in Ontario, that would be the Hydro One equivalent. The, the people that, that the generators sell their electricity to the grid operators, and then the grid operators are the ones that distribute it to the end consumers. So I would assume that there's definitely, there's going to be some public backing in this and I'm very interested to see how it plays out because this is this was only just announced this morning and a lot of people are like, oh, well, that's an interesting mm. one because because then that starts playing into like the the thesis of of Bitcoin as a, like a national security thing where yep. if you play if it's stabilizing your grid and it gets to the point where it becomes entrenched in your grid and you're you're not going to want to go back to the way things were once you have gotten a taste of the benefits that it provides for like your grid stability, your improved economics. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's, there's so many benefits that it's going to provide. Like, like we see it cause we're immersed in this stuff, but unless you're, unless you're following guys like, uh, like, like Brandon Quidham and Steve Barber and Troy Cross. And yeah, I could name off like a dozen people in that space that like we're, we're immersed in this and we just, now we're just trying to educate the right people to so that they can see what we see because i saw today we're fighting in fighting in the senate hearing committee with elizabeth warren again as usual oh god she's to be ignored anyway but back to japan like yeah you're right it's national security that that ends it's like go ahead sanction me bitch you know i don't care I don't need your oil. I don't need your gas. I'm not going to be drawn into one of your wars again because we are completely self-sufficient on our own nuclear energy. And by the way, we're mining our own currency on it and it's called Bitcoin. And that is still globally accepted by absolutely anybody. So you cannot cut us off or out of global trade anymore. It changes the whole game. Oh yeah. It's going to make countries a lot more resilient and, and independent there's no reason not to have good trade relationships, but having your energy systems dependent upon others, like like even allies is sketchy, let alone like what Germany did and mm-hmm. became dependent on an adversary. That was uh, not the, the best play, but uh, 
And then all of a sudden, two massive pipelines just blow up under the sea by accident, you know? No, not just yeah. nothing to be suspicious about here. <laughs> well, then you start trying to play the game of like, well, well, who has the highest motive to do that? Like, who benefits the most? And well, could could be sabotaged by one side so that they can just burn the bridges and and commit to the current courses of action, like. Uh, geopolitics these days is 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 a shit show. <laughs> like I try to fo stay focused on on the energy game now that that's what I'm I'm obsessed with. All right, so you're obsessed with nuclear energy. You're obsessed with Bitcoin, and this has all come together for you in uh, it, <laughs> the perfect fission, I suppose, uh, to use the uh, analogy. Talk us through it. What happened? How, how did Bitcoin? enter your life and how did you kind of like realize oh damn like th there's two fixes here oh yeah well it clicked with me at the right place at the right time that's the, the shortest way to put it but i had been aware of bitcoin since fairly early on probably like 11 12 is i had gone through down the, like the the rabbit hole of, of what is money from uh, the zeitgeist uh, documentaries and then then following along with ron paul and all the and and the fed and, that that sort of thing and then there was some content that i had consumed that where like max kaiser would pop up every once in a while and he was doing his evangelizing thing while bitcoin was still worth pennies and he had found found the solution to all of the things he's been complaining about for many decades and and then i just life moved on i, I got more, more attentive to, to other topics and like started like like listening to things like like joe rogan and uh, Jordan Peterson, cultural cultural stuff that was going on. And then it would have been 17, 18. I cashed out of a poker site, like a few hundred dollars, and, and they had it available to cash out as Bitcoin. So I, just, I spun up a wallet on my tablet and cashed out. And then I just left it there and forgot about it and never really took the deep dive. And then it, when it was the big run up in, yeah, the, the, the bull run in early 21 was attracted me to be like yeah what 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 is this thing because now my few hundred dollars is now worth a few thousand and i started to actually take it seriously i dove right off the deep end because max being my first touch point i went right at right into the orange pill podcast and then before long yeah the, the my whole podcast list is freaking like breed love and phallus <laughs> and and you and bitcoin audible and btc sessions just yeah my every everything flipped to very very laser-eyed orange pilled um and then it was when I heard two podcasts in short, short succession with Adamo and Steve Barber talking about what they're doing with upstream data. And I was like very excitedly telling my wife about all this stuff. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, the Internet money and, it, and it's it's consuming it's consuming flare gas. That's pretty cool. And maybe the environmentalists will back off. But no, you try to point that out to them. And they're just like, I don't care. That's stupid. It's like, right. we're, solving, we're solving the problem that you complain about. And it's like, well, it's a stupid way to solve it. It's like. Do you just like complaining about things then clearly? Um, and then it was the time when Elon Musk went on his little tirade about, oh, Bitcoin's energy use is bad. And then the market dumped. Mm -hmm. I was having a conversation with my wife who was, she, she was, she was just reading the article and she's like, oh, this is stupid. And and she, she works in, in the industry as well. So she's like, well, we're going to start building small modular reactors so why don't we mine bitcoin with small modular reactors and she's just she she reacted to that as if it's like well 
that's that's a given like it just makes sense like if you're saying what you're saying is true then then that just makes sense and i just got lost in my mind for a long period of time there just processing like yes yes this is actually a very good idea especially with how we intend to deploy these small modular reactors to off-grid communities where they don't have the consumption capacity to justify the investment to build a large power asset. Now we can deploy them with built-in customers. So, and then I just started consuming everything I could along those, those lines. Like I read that, uh, I read that long essay by the, uh, what is it? Drew Armstrong and AJ Scalia, the guys from Cathedra, the the case Bitcoin and the case for more energy, I was consuming like anything that like Nick Carter was putting out or Lynn Alden, the I loved the the pioneer species idea that that Brandon Quidham put out there and it was like like that that's exactly it we're gonna drop nuclear reactors in the middle of nowhere, and the the Bitcoin mining is going to act as the catalyst to grow that seed, it's. It was perfect. And like the more I learn about the reactors, like that is one of their biggest problems. Like after you get through through the concerns about the waste and and like the the mining and the material and, and the labor, like the economics is one of the large sticking points that needs to be overcome. And if we can have a guaranteed customer, no matter where we build a nuclear reactor, we uh we open up a lot more opportunities to build nuclear reactors where it would not have made sense before. And because they're smaller, they have a lot more applications that they can be applied to. Whereas typically the big reactors have to be at least relatively close to a large consumption load, like a large city or industrial park or what have you. And then, uh, yeah, so I was deeply on that rabbit hole. And then in July of 21, uh, an organization that I belong to called North American Young Generation in Nuclear was hosting this contest called Innovation for Nuclear. And it was how to come up with innovative ideas for the nuclear power industry to tackle the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And like as much as like everyone's like, oh, yeah, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah, I, I know the feelings that many in the Bitcoin space have towards those. But like you, you read the goals on on their face value. It's like ending poverty, improving health, improving infrastructure, like yeah, on the course. on their face value, they're all good things, but it's yeah. the the, sh the shadiness is what happens behind the scenes. So it's like, all right, well, the being able to deploy nuclear reactors anywhere tackles pretty much all of those goals. But then, if you can accelerate and amplify their capability of doing that, it just does it even better. And then it opens up all kinds of opportunities for for education, for for like entrepreneurial enterprises in places where that have basically been in cycles of poverty for generations. Like, like I'm sure you, you've, yeah, you've spoken with, with the guys that are doing a lot of the, uh, the humanitarian outreach on the Bitcoin side. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of places that could use some reliable, affordable electricity. Is oh, like yes. Where we're, where we're applying these small modular reactors in Northern Canada, like they've been running on diesel generators for, for decades and getting diesel into remote northern communities on trucks and on planes takes the already exorbitantly expensive diesel and like doubles it, triples it in some cases. And so the cost of electricity in these communities is is incredibly high. And then on like, yeah, so there's that, that yeah. So the I4N contest with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, 
we submitted an idea. So I assembled a team that consisted of myself and two other, my, myself, my wife, and two others. And we submitted it. And then we won the first phase, which was just basically just a short, like little three minute pitch and a five minute, pa a five page paper. And we won that. And then we went head to head with another team for the full North American contest. And then we ended up winning that one. And basically all I'm doing is I'm just pitching like Bitcoin mining. It's the perfect demand response. It has these like seven properties that make it the perfect consumer of electricity. Like I didn't really get, get too elaborate because we only had so much space to, to, to work within. And we wanted to focus on like the UN goals and, and how it applies to those. And then we won. And then the third phase of the contest was supposed to be hosted at the IYNC conference in Russia, in Sochi, Russia in May. But uh, that kind of got kiboshed by events in Ukraine. So yeah. they very quickly uh, rushed and found a new venue in Koryama, Japan. And then we, we, we did our final pitch of the idea there. We did not win, but there was pretty solid competition. So I, I'm, doesn't bother me at all like this just going to this conference was an opportunity for me to get gauge the space and, and from like the the younger perspective and also orange pill everybody that was willing to have a conversation with me so i had some some pretty pretty good ones like like and being being a bit of an introvert i wasn't like yeah i i i could have done more but I think I did I did pretty good for my my personality and the way that I that I am. So I'm very happy with how it went and I think I have a lot more confidence to go and do be even more aggressive next time. But we'll see. But even for being in a bear market, the people that I was talking to, they they the the idea clicked with them. Like there was definitely some discussion of like, oh well what about that FTX stuff and and mm -hmm. oh what if what about like yeah the price price of the hardware and well, these are just these are, these are variables that you have to play with. Like it's it's a yeah. game, yeah. And everybody's like trying to trying to maximize their the variables in their favor. And yeah, if you 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 play with leverage at the top, like Core Scientific taking out debt against your Bitcoin holdings and your your hardware right at the top of the market, and then it takes a dump, you're going to be in a tough spot. But then if you're more like the the guys at CleanSpark, where they've stayed well capitalized, now they're in an advantageous position to scoop up all of this cheap hardware. And I hear that a lot of their, their facilities are based out of Georgia, which Georgia's going to be turning on a new nuclear reactor very soon. So I'm very curious to see how uh, how that affects the Bitcoin mining in Georgia. And then like another interesting one is in Pennsylvania, there's a project to, to connect a Bitcoin data mining center to, a to their, one of their reactors. There's definitely some interesting stuff going on in Ohio. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, uh what is it? Austin Hill and the, the Sonoda. You haven't heard about that one yet? Oh, the, no. they're, they're developing basically an application where you will be able to stream sats in real time as you're consuming electricity and to, to pay for your utility bill, just basically like, like we do with, with, with fountain app, when I can yeah. stream to you while listening to your podcasts, like he, they're setting something up so that you can do that with your utility bill in real time as your meter is ticking. So that's, that's awesome. Oh yeah. Cause it's, because the way that he was explaining is like when you're buying, using that electricity and not paying for it two months, like that's a credit risk on the utility. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. 
Of course. That's gone. And then they can offer you lower prices because that takes a huge liability off of their balance sheets. So I think it's all going to, all going to fit together. And like the small modular reactors have so much potential. Uh, how, how, when you say small, like how small are we talking? Uh, small encompasses anything less than 300 megawatts. So like your typical nuclear reactor that we have out there is, is a, depending on how old they are, seven, 800 megawatts. Like the new ones that are just being built in the UAE, they're like 1.4 gigawatts per unit. Mm. Like these, these reactors that are being built now are huge, but they only have, they have a, a narrow market that they can be built in. And like once they're built and they, they, and if the market's there, like that's great, but there's communities throughout like Africa that could, be better served by a reactor that generates just five megawatts instead of 500 so there's going to be a lot more a lot more ap applicability because and then the range goes from like the the micro reactors are anything less than 10 megawatts so they yeah so small is anything less than 300 and then these there's the micro ones that they have they're even smaller and the, the micro ones are basically going to be able to fit a nearly complete reactor on the back of a transport trailer and just ship it to site and, as and assemble the final components because the idea is that they're going to be like mass produced in a, in a factory type of setting on an assembly line so that they can take advantage of, of like repeat construction and, and learning, uh, learning techniques to improve the, the construction process and, and like get a lot of, a lot more standardized practices in, in the material and this, the supply chains that they use so that's going to be it's going to reduce the costs dramatically and then but so then just, the problem is i'm trying to picture this in my in my mind um as we all decentralize this this helps us get out of the cities right we don't need to be in cities anymore uh and we could go out to areas of natural beauty and build communities around a micro reactor uh, is am I using the right words here? Yeah, that, and that thing could be about the size of a shipping container or a little bit larger. Well, the the main components would be in the shipping container. Like there would have to be like a like a building ever built around it to house it. But mm -hmm. even of then, course. like yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be that like the size of like maybe like a public school or like a hockey arena something. So like it would just be size. like it, it, a building because it would be built and you know it would be running and whatever else but it, it wouldn't be like one of these massive eyesores it, it, it it's going to be pretty small oh yeah they'll, then, they'll be able to build them in a way that you you wouldn't even know what it was unless you actually knew what it was like they'll just be a nondescript building that's just over there with a bunch of power lines coming out of it and then the cool thing about the the modularity is like say you've got a five megawatt reactor but yeah you want your community needs like 13 megawatts mm -hmm. you can just build like you can build three of these units in tandem and mm -hmm. then couple them all together and then you can have uh just say say one central control room where you can have like one central uh turbine building and then each of the the generator modules would be on their own so instead of having three of each you can kind of streamline that a bit and then where i see a lot of like the bitcoin mining come in is like perhaps you see that in the future, this community has the potential to develop up to like 30 megawatts, but they're only consuming about 13. Now you can just build the full 30, fill that space with the Bitcoin miners. And then as the community 
grows into its new energy profile, you can just peel off miners and deploy them somewhere else where it will make more sense to them. And then the locations where I'm talking about in Northern Canada, we also have the added benefit that these little guys are space heaters if uh, configured in the right way. And then like on top of that, like Troy Cross was talking with uh, McCormick recently threw out some interesting ideas about like one being uh, like a lot of the carbon capture technology is basically just drawing air through a fan and into through a medium that, that absorbs the carbon and then out the other side. I was like, well, why just run, run your miners through and then you can, you can take the the fans to blow the air through the carbon capture, and then you can probably up, capture the heat and go can send that off into a greenhouse or something nearby. Mm-hmm. Or you can take that carbon and you can distribute that into the greenhouse. Like there's so many different ways that this can be configured. And by and the the ideas that I'm seeing with the modeling is is very complex and convoluted with how they're trying to be like oh well you can you can ramp up and down the reactors and and like that's a cool capability but then you're either losing out on potential economic benefit or you're when you when you do ramp up and down your your core like any generator even like a natural gas generator that puts unnecessary wear and stress on the equipment and and the lifetime of of your generation station so if you can just leave your reactor running at 100 percent all the time regardless of what your local demand looks like that's going to have a significant improvement on the lifetime of your reactor and then for one of these for one of these micro reactors sorry to jump in on my mind is racing one of these micro reactors that you take and you build a community around. Yeah, if I remember rightly, about half an hour ago, we were talking about the shelf life of the fuel rods. It's like one and a half to three years. You might only need to take out before they get switched out. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and that's that two to three. That's typically like the, the, the light water reactors that we're familiar with, the traditional type. The, the one that we're going to be building at CNL are demonstrating that's going to be the one we anticipate to deploy to remote off-grid communities. Uh, it's going to have a 20 year fuel cycle. So basically, right. you could, okay. Oh yeah. So you don't even need to go to a uranium rich plane. You just turn up with your module. You, you like it gets built, the fuel cells turn up and then you just need another delivery in 20 years and you're good to go. Pretty much. Yeah. Or yeah. Or you could just keep, <laughs> keep a second fuel pod just on hand right. and then yeah then you've got 40 years worth of fuel available on site and you're basically limited to how well you maintain your reactor and do your preventative maintenance like there's some parts that are are going to wear over time like anything like like maintaining a classic car like there's some parts mm. that you're going to need to swap out over time but for the of most course. part like you can keep the main components in good enough shape that you can push them 40 60 80 years it's like the complete opposite of what happened in the gold rush, right? Instead of risking life and limb to cross mountain ranges and blizzards and you know um, people that wanted to basically kill you to get to the other side to to hopefully find gold, you're taking all that shit with you already and just plugging in and building a community around it and you know civilization like immediate civilization that's the idea that that same sounds like the pioneer species idea in a nutshell just yeah. 
we can go we can we can go yeah we go to where the power is and now we have the ability to put the power wherever we want like there's going Mm -hmm. to be there's within reason like there's going to be some limitations but like even some of these reactors are going to be designed in such a way that they're like seismically stable so that even even a strong earthquake is not even going to bother them so and i remember ross stevens talking about this in his interview with michael saylor did you watch that one uh, when they did the MicroStrategy world day start of 2021 and... God, with all the content that i consume yeah i'm surprised i haven't <laughs> gotten that one because those are two two big so, brains for sure sailor interviewed ross and it was the first time i'd ever even heard about ross he had never been on any podcast or uh, appeared anywhere at all in a bitcoin space and that was the opening interview and at some point in that interview ross did basically say bitcoin is going to uh, give communities, give us the ability to uh, move, decentralize ourselves to areas of natural beauty where we can now build up around, he used the example of a waterfall for, you know, for, for a great example, uh, because now you can mine Bitcoin. And <laughs> but you guys are taking it one step further. Like, yeah, no, just load up the truck, guys, let's go, because we got the, the mini nuclear reactor and we're good we're solid for 40 years oh, yeah <laughs> it, it, it's, it blows my mind oh i know like when i started really digging into it like i was just like trying trying to do 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 the good kind of scientist thing where you're just like well how how does how can this not work and trying to come up mm-hmm. and conceive of all the ways like that it doesn't but every pathway that i've gone down it leads me to just like this this is the way forward but it takes a lot of education for people to not only get nuclear power and bitcoin and how electricity systems work like these are things that a small fraction of the world understands even like one of the three of them but putting all three of them together is like i'm still pretty neophyte in my understanding of of like nuclear power like i'm not like i'm not a nuclear engineer or anything like i i work with tons of them and i can pick their brains whenever i need to but uh, i got one for you because this is this is one very very close to my heart Uh, i don't know if you've heard about the uh, the free madeira project that's going on over here in europe yeah i've heard of that one okay yeah. I, now you've got my mind spinning into, I hope there's uranium on Madeira, because if there is, you just solved their dependency problem. Because at the moment, I was in the meeting in the energy board with Troy and uh, with Obi and with Greg Foss and with everybody else that was there. And for those of you that have not don't know about this, listeners, just go, just search freemadeira.com and you'll see the, the documentary video there. Um we yeah, I did that, see that. It just came out. Yeah, yeah. We we had that meeting in the energy, and we learned that they're they're very dependent on diesel. I think sixty percent of their fuel mix is imported diesel. Oof. So now I'm wondering, Ryan, can you get over to Madeira with a geologist and, and figure out whether or not there is any uranium there, any geothermal? I mean, it's a volcanic island. It's got to be geothermal somewhere. They're certainly tidal. They're right in the middle of the the Atlantic. Well, like that would be awesome. Like if they did have uranium, however, 
unlikely it is, but if they were to buy a nuclear power asset from one of the various vendors that's getting out there, like the, the fuel comes with it. Like, cause you can mm-hmm. have a relation, like there's plenty of right. different people to have a relationship. Like you can get your fuel from Australia, from Canada, from the U S mm-hmm. from Russia, from like, there's a few places throughout South or throughout Africa that, that France gets most of the uranium from the, the way that they go about doing it is kind of, like well you i'm sure you're aware of all like the the colonialist techniques that they use with that stupid currency they have in in africa yeah that they they use that to basically exploit all of the labor and resources and leave nothing behind for the local populations which is pretty standard practice for many many decades but we're we're trying to get past that and i'm hoping that this strategy can can really help move it forward like i saw there was somebody put looked like maybe 10 s17s or s19s on a like a little waterfall in nigeria or mm-hmm. they were generating electricity and providing that for the local community so seeing like all kinds of like little operations like that spring up with that uh what is it a gridless company that's out there doing some good work because i would i would really like to connect some of the people that i met at the iync that were there representing african countries and get them going and meeting with guys like like obi and, and ray yusuf and and start to go down that rabbit hole because the the one one of the young guys that i met like he's running around his like local area doing education efforts to get the in the local schools and on the local radios to get them more in, into nuclear power and like the fact that he's a like a, a nuclear engineer in tanzania where they don't have nuclear power and nothing South Africa is the only country that has a nuclear power plant. So he's going around trying to advocate for getting more, more kids interested in nuclear power and in the communities, but he's doing it all on his own dime. So I'm want to connect him with these Bitcoiners that are the type of people that be like, we like nuclear power. We can help you to get, yeah. Like it just seems like a perfect fit to put these two interests together because it's only a matter of time before, we we reach that point where it's kind of cascades and it, it'll be in a few years we'll be looking back at conversations like this where we're like pontificating about what the future could be and we'll we'll, we'll be like how how did how did nobody it's so obvious now that how was it a thing that we had to like just force into the conversation but i'd say within within two having cycles it's like yeah almost every generator is going to have some some sort of bitcoin mining capacity it, 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 what a time to be alive and uh yeah, th- that word environmentalist that you that you mentioned earlier it, it, it needs to be said that the key word within that word is mentalist uh, you know, <laughs> that, that it's just so clear now uh, and it, but it's only the bitcoiners that seem to be um Truly paying attention. I, 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 I'm, I'm hoping more and more people are waking up, maybe slowly but surely, especially now in Europe, where we, we're just about to get some really cold weather. It's already started. And if that really cold weather properly hits Germany, and they, I mean, I had a guy on the other day, Pascal Najadi, and he was explaining what happened with those pipelines. He said there's still... Um, Nord Stream 2B, which is perfectly 
operationable and operational, excuse me, and can be turned on at any point at the German end. It's full of gas. It's just waiting to blow out of the nozzle. But because of the sanctions and because of all of this complete and utter geopolitical bullshit like you were talking about before, people are going to end up suffering. Yeah, pain's a great teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I hate that it has gotten to this point, but poor decisions that result in pain will uh, hopefully smarten people up to move in a different direction. But we will see. People that are very ideologically driven can be quite stubborn in their efforts and that seems to be how the the german green party is very stubborn and they have a lot of influence for the size of their organization but well at least in in france they just fired up some more of their reactors so that should at least uh provide some buffer for you guys over there fingers crossed uh adopting bitcoin Give us some uh, give us some stories. What was going on? How was it? El Salvador. Oh, that was wild because, yeah. So I took my wife. We were initially going to bring the whole family, but I wanted to just, just take her with us and then we can pay attention to the conference and not have to worry about the kids. Maybe maybe next time or we'll go when there isn't a conference and they can enjoy the, the atmosphere. Yeah, so so we first we, we landed from Canada. So I'm still wearing my winter jacket because it was snowing in Canada when I left. And then it wasn't so bad in the airport where there's air conditioning, but as soon as you walk out of that door, Oh, you just get hit by just a wave of humidity, 30 degree, 70% humidity. Oh yeah. And then that was uh, definitely a change and we had rented a car. So then we're off to like, okay, let's go find our hotel. And we didn't get a place in the city. We were off on the coast in, uh, what is it? El, El Tunco. Yeah, somewhere along there, about 15 minutes from El Zante. So we were driving back and forth to the city to to uh, get to the conference. So that first night was wild because we're driving in the dark in a foreign country. And there's dogs all over the place. And there's and like I'm used to where where are we are outside at night everyone's got reflective gear so you can see them coming from a mile away like you're driving these streets in el salvador and they're, they're st- tight streets and the trees come hanging right over the roads and then all of a sudden like oh there's there's a person on the side of the road oh shit <laughs> careful and so you get have to be a lot more attentive because because yeah they're it's very very dark along those roads and then we get to our hotel it was a really nice hotel but like the road the, like the little side road that we had to take to get up there was the equivalent of like the backwoods hunting road that we went to like the weekend before it was pretty pretty surprising and then uh yeah the armed guard led us into the compound where we were they op- opened the gate for us and he was a very very friendly chap and then starting to get into more where the, the language barrier was very interesting and and like we live fairly close to Quebec and we get lots of like French classes. So we found ourselves quite often there's close enough similarities that we would start dropping like French terms and, and then be really confused when they like, look at you like, no, not, not, not here. <laughs> but, but yeah, we got checked in and it was, that was, that was fun. And then, yeah, we woke up and went to the conference the next day, met with a few people. Like I had been speaking with, uh, with, uh, Herson Martinez and Joshua Lopez from down there in advance of the conference. Cause we had, uh, we shared a panel together um, just talking about different ideas of, of how we can use Bitcoin mining and potentially nuclear power and possibly even fusion in 
in El Salvador. And then I was just yeah running around, taking in all the talks. Like a lot of it was very like lightning and technical focused, but then there was, a, there was a few other ones that were a little bit more like, like growing adoption in, uh, in, in like rural, like rural, like remote areas. And there was, uh, like Austin Hill gave a presentation on what they're doing with Sonoda. Uh, I caught the one, to talk about the Thunder Games and the way that they're they've gotten everyone addicted to solitaire again because now you can earn sats playing solitaire. And yeah, there was yeah good party atmosphere, very very jovial. I met like yeah met met uh, Walker and Carla. Greg Foss was there. Met uh, met Paco. And then in the uh, at the end of the first day, they had a showing of the. The, the dare to dream documentary that that uh, Vallis did with a bunch of others and so we walked in and then I sat down right behind a guy I didn't get a good look at his face but it looked looked like it was Vallis and I'm just like so I just stayed quiet and and then and then I I, I heard him talking to someone in front of me I was like oh yeah that's definitely him but I didn't want to bother him while the movie was playing but I could see when he first came on the screen there was another guy a few seats over he's like looking at us he's like like is that the guy <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's 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 the guy that's on the screen right now. And then I met a few of the others that were in the the video. I met uh, Mike Mike Peterson briefly when we were down at the beach, and I met uh, what is it, Chim Chimbera, yep. one of the guys that's doing the work down there. So we had a had a good conversation with just him and my wife when we were on the beach on our on our own the day after. Because they did the first two days were conference at the hotel, and then the third day was everyone went and did the tour to Bitcoin Beach, and it was it was pretty packed. I'm sure they did very very well uh, financially the, for those few days, and then because we had such a great time, we came back the day after on the Friday, and I did uh, took a few surfing lessons, and we just wandered around and checked out the place. Well, it was a little little quieter, and was uh enjoyed the sunset and then on 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 the thursday night they had arranged to do like a, a turtle release where they let all the baby turtles go and run down to the ocean so so that was a lot of fun just really chill atmosphere it was really really cool place and like met a ton of cool people I'm definitely was that your first time first time around like that many bitcoiners in real life yes i had been to a small-ish meetup in toronto would have been last July, I believe, and yeah, the, so I like I had met Foss in person there, and uh, the Canadian Bitcoiner guys were there, a few few of my other internet friends. But it's but it is funny just going and, and meeting these people that you're not used to, just hearing their voice in your head, and you feel like you're all like you are all part of this community, and then but now they're the real people standing in front of you, like Paco and Prince Philip, and meeting yeah tons tons of cool people but yeah the, the one the one regret i had was i wanted i wanted to chase down samson and, and and talk to him a little bit more but we'll get there and then then yeah and then there was the nuclear conference like i was in canada for four days and then i got in a plane to go to japan so I went yeah i went from very little travel at all to going right. going going to japan <laughs> Well, and I and McCormick brought me to London to Bedford in the right. summer as well. So there was that. So I went from from nothing. Like I had never left Canada outside of like crossing. the bright lights of Bedford. I, I'm oh, sure yeah. stole the show for you. Uh... Oh, it was great. 
I'm sure I'm sure I'll find more opportunities to be to do a little bit more touristy stuff but <laughs> will you put up in the uh the swan hotel is that the, is that the name of it right there on the canal in, in bedford uh it wasn't right on the canal it was it was nearby like it was only about a two two blocks walk like I walked around all the all downtown and along the canal and all that checked it out took a whole bunch of pictures to show show everyone back home the uh what <laughs> well, about since Whereabouts in Japan did you go? Where was that conference? Koryama, which it was well, on the bullet train. It was about two hours north of Tokyo. Like I have no idea physical distance in kilometers because that that train was crazy fast. It was probably. Was it? Well, are people still going crazy COVID over there and masked up on all transportation or what's what's the what's the word? Uh there didn't seem like there was a lot of enforcement of it. It was, it was heavily suggested that you wear a mask in crowded areas and that you, and that you're just kind of polite about it. But it, it didn't seem like there was any aggressive enforcement. But it, but they're, it's, they're already kind of accustomed to that in their culture. So it wasn't wasn't much of a surprise to see more masks in Japan than I have been in Canada since they they dropped the uh, requirements to do so here. Hmm. It wasn't bad. No, it's good to hear. Yeah, man, Japan, what a crazy world. What a crazy, crazy world. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, an, an amazing place to visit. Incredible culture. I mean, Tokyo itself is just blows you blows you away. And, uh, and the food, obviously, is just amazing. Oh, yeah. We had a few hours in Tokyo before we had to catch our flight. So we went and walked around the, uh, what is it, the... Rapongi? What was the... the... The Palace Gardens. Oh right, yes, yeah, yeah. Like that, that whole place. The walls of that place could fit my tiny little small town in northern Ontario inside of it. Probably, <laughs> it was <laughs> it was very impressive, like architecture and building. And then, yeah. yeah, beautiful gardens. Did the souvenir collecting? Make sure that everybody got something for Christmas. But yeah, like the idea was very well received. Like even though we didn't win the contest, like everybody i talked to so there there was one there was one fellow that didn't seem to to grasp the well my banking system works so why do i need something like this like, mm -hmm. okay well you're not thinking broad enough that's that's your problem what but, what were the other what were the other ideas being pitched then like what was the winning idea the winning team was pitching an idea of how to retrofit ports in in order to be able to support nuclear powered freighters so they had some pretty cool ideas of how they're going to do that. It's going to take a lot of like harmonization across like regulatory and, and like licensing bodies that manage that sort of thing. But they had like these cool ideas. One of the judges actually brought up just like, well, what are you going to do if uh, like when you're parked in port and not using your generators or if you're just going through uh, through a canal or something? And she, she, she threw out the idea. It's like, well, could you like mine Bitcoin with it? And I'm sitting there in the corner just be like, <laughs> yeah, yes, you could. You just fill one of those containers with a few ASICs and away you go when you're not using your full capacity. But like they were actually prepared. They had another slide where it's just like, oh, yeah, we're going to retrofit like uh transformers on the on the port so you can basically just plug in and you can distribute that electricity into the whatever local grid you have access to so there's doesn't seem ideas. to solve for tidal waves though no but there's there's definitely interesting security and safety risks but 
What else? Yeah. Give us another. Prison. Give us another example. There must have been a uh, bunch of shit you saw. Yeah, well, there were six six ideas in the contest altogether. One of them was uh, the the young guy that I'd already told you about that's doing the education and advocacy. He's got a small team of like three or four people with him that are just trying to try. Like, and they had like really good metrics that they were following for. They were um, showing like this. This is how many people thought favorably of nuclear power before we talked to them, and then then we then we gave them a pitch, and then came back three months later, and then oh there's like a 20% increase in, in interest in, in these ideas and technology. So they were really good at showing that they were having success on the ground in their education efforts. And then there was uh, another one. There were, there was two that were robot related. One was a robot that was designed to go into like highly active areas and, and pick up any like radioactive debris that you may want to collect and, and analyze or, clean or examine in various ways and then the other one was a submersible robot that would be wirelessly and autonomously controlled in the fuel bay rods which is where the the fuel rods go after they immediately get taken out of the reactor they're putting in they're basically kept in a pool for like three four or five years before they can be put into the to dry storage um so he was proposing an interesting idea of some like autonomous robots that can be used to do actions in the pool without having to pull the rods out to do anything related to them. Uh, and then the final idea was um, an idea to instead of because typical way that we capture energy from nuclear fission is that we we heat up a medium whether it's whether it's a gas or a liquid or a salt. And then we run that through a heat exchanger, collect that heat, and then run it through the through a um, a uh, turbine. And but what they were proposing was something that would collect the the decay because when when nuclear fissile material uh, decays, it just it'll it'll emit particles. So like a like an electron will just fly off of it, and that's part of the decay process. So they were proposing something similar to how uh, like photovoltaic cells collect like um, collect photons but designing it to collect the the material that and the the electrons and, and various other like little nuclear material that comes out during the nuclear fission process so those those were the the six and then and then ours was yeah we're going to fix the economics of nuclear reactors by mining bitcoin love it Love the fact you got that done, man. That's so awesome. Well oh, yeah. Done. Well, well, now I've got a taste of it. So I think I'm going to start applying to just speak at various other conferences. Like I, I would like, so I did, I did the El Salvador conference this time. Maybe I'd like to do the African one next time. And then mm -hmm. with the, the nuclear conferences, they have various different ones for, for different uh, niches in the industry. So I might start applying to just do general technical talks at some of those conferences and just, just well, get me in the room with these one. people. We've got a big one coming up in Europe, in Prague in June. So if you want, I'd happily put you in touch with the organizers. Uh, it'd be the 8th or 10th of June. I don't know what year. You're, someone's shaping up. Well, that coincides a bit too close with the Canada Bitcoin conference. It's going to be oh. like the weekend after. So, Damn. so yeah, I can I can only travel so much. I have limited vacation time, and uh, <laughs> and and um, yeah, these trips. Well, aside from like until Bitcoin pumps, and then you can do whatever the hell you like, right? Because you yeah, yourself. I gotta gotta fill my bags as much as I can right now <laughs> while the uh, 
well, well, we got this fire sale going on, but like, who knows, who knows if another one of these exchanges takes, it bites the dust and then drags us down a little bit more, but ultimately short-term pain for long-term gain back, is what it is. Back under 10K and uh, then we can all start tweeting back at Hodlin or, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I got to ask you, I got to ask you the last question. If you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to? And why? See, I've already been thinking about this one because I've been listening to your podcast for a while. And being related to the nuclear power industry, I would want to give it to Raphael Grossi, the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency. And they, he sits right at the top and he would be able to influence everything beneath him. Like I, in fact, had a good conversation with one of his, uh, one of his subordinates at the conference and he was very very receptive to the idea because he had given a, a presentation and then in the small modular reactions reactor section there was well they're great and they're gonna they're gonna cost less and we're gonna they've got all these cool new features but and but but there's still the economics of not having the customers that we need to and then i, I was just like i've got one for you right here and then you pitched the idea of the bitcoin mining and at first there's there's a little bit of like I I, w I didn't really feel like dismissiveness, but it was just like I don't know it's kind of hard to describe, but it but it was I had not like it's like the the it's an idea that had never even been considered, and then but then once you like pierce that veil, then it, then they start to to see what you see, and like I had a few good moments like that where it was where as soon as I like it was. I, it wasn't right away, like after just a few minutes of just explaining what I what I see and, and how I see it fitting, I had many people just be like, oh, that that is a really good idea. And then apparently there were other people that were that came up and talked to some other members of my team that were like, oh, yes, there's there's people talking about this Bitcoin mining idea. Like That sounds like something that could be could be really, really work and surprising considering the wider ecosystem right now. But. But yeah, if we can get people in the IAEA to realize that they have a, they have the golden goose of energy consumers in their hands and they just need to leverage it, it's going to be like all bets are going to be off going forward because once the nuclear industry fully, fully embraces this, it's going to, it's going to get crazy. Like <laughs> I, I, I can't even picture and envision how how things are going to get because it's going to by the early 30s things are going to start moving very fast but it's going to be getting there that's the challenge mm -hmm. the 20s 20s seem like they're going to be a bit of a rough ride well i've got to i'm going to close it out with a challenge to the plebs because it can anybody like i'd love to get an orange pill into Mac Roaming's neck after all of the, the how we started this conversation talking about the Simpsons and the damage that has done to so many people's minds. I mean, I grew up watching the Simpsons. When did that start? Like early nineties or something? Mid nineties? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, God, God damn, guys! Like, come on, like re, you know, let let's. Well, I tell you what, Mac Roaming, we can write you a script, one episode script about mining Bitcoin off of. The uh, the nuclear power station, Mr. Burns, he can keep all the Bitcoin. We don't care. Homer can fuck it all up. We don't care. But we've got to get the message out. And uh, Ryan, unfortunately, mate, you're going to have to write that script if we can make this happen. 
That would be fun. Well, there's already a real world example of, of someone trying to mine with the, the nuclear reactors. Like there's the ones that are being built that I described earlier, but I'm not sure if it was Russia or Ukraine that the, the details are kind of fuzzy because I've heard it from different sources, but there were some operators at a reactor that had plugged in ASICs and were mining on the sly. And then, <laughs> and then they, they ultimately they, they got caught and, and fired and, and charged. The there's the script. There's but then, the script. But then I saw like in Ukraine, they were like before shit went sideways for them, they were talking about building Bitcoin data centers to attach to their nuclear fleets. That's very interesting. So it's almost like you confiscated, the, you saw what these guys were up to, you confiscated their hardware and you're just like, we can just plug it in for ourselves. Why not? Dare I say the magic three words? Bitcoin fixes this. Bitcoin fixes a lot of things, but we have to take it from there, though. Just, Whoa. just, just tweaks the incentives just, just a little bit in the right direction, and then, then it can take it from there. That's the chemist in you. I love it, mate. Uh, I think what you're doing is brilliant. Well done. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, let, let's break you out of your introverted self and get you orange pilling as many nuclear physicists as you can uh, to to understand what we are literally. I mean, man, th this reshapes. Uh, this is a whole new evolution, right? This is like a rediscovery of fire. It certainly is. And it's not going back in the box. And like, that's why I, I don't know how many times I've tried to explain to people, but it's like, oh, it's just going to go to zero. No, this one's not <laughs> going away. Like, If it starts going to zero, there is an army of crazy people on the internet that will buy it right to the bottom, create a new floor and build up from there. Like, no, this, this is, this is the funnest cult I've ever been a part of. <laughs> <laughs> that could be that could be the title of the show maybe all right mate we'll leave it on That's that thank, yeah thank you so much for coming on brother thanks for having me that was a great chat take care speak soon see ya hey guys thank you for tuning into that rip with ryan and ryan thanks again for your time and all of your knowledge and what you're doing for the bitcoin space i cannot wait uh, he ryan is actively looking into projects where he could get uh, where he's modeling up SMRs, small uh, modular reactors that could be put on straight to an island. I won't say which island, um, which might help that island gain its own independence and self-sustainability. Th th that is huge. And at the same time, mine Bitcoin. Look out for the future because this is going to happen. You cannot face down something that solves so many problems for so much of humanity uh, you know if you can solve the energy problem of a nation it's going to happen it doesn't matter what politicians are involved or in the way this is what humanity is all about so Keep a close eye on what's going on, guys, and uh, keep stacking those sats because, like I said at the beginning of the show, we're very early, and these are very tasty prices. So, you know, who to who to use? Swan Bitcoin, Relay, Coin Corner, Hoddle Hoddle, 
these are places where you can go and start stacking or adding to your stack. Then use Wasabi Wallet if you're interested in the coin join side of things. And the signing device is compulsory, you have to get one. So that's the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet or signing device from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten. And get to a conference. There's going to be plenty to choose from in 2023. We've got BTC Prague coming up in June. That's going to be really big. We've got the big one, the huge one in Miami. If you can get across to the States, that would be an awesome place to go and meet the plebs. And we have uh, Swan Bitcoin. They're going to be hosting Pacific Bitcoin again on the West Coast. So there's a great opportunity for you to start getting across to these conferences. And there's even going to be one in the Philippines, India, Australia. Every every continent is going to be covered. The social layer of Bitcoin is something that's not being talked about enough. Uh, it's high time the plebs got out and actually started meeting each other in real life or meeting each other for the first time. Because when you do that, if you've ever been to a conference, you'll find, oh my God, I've been stood talking to this person for two and a half hours. I'm My legs are exhausted, my feet are dead, but I cannot stop this conversation. This is where we need to keep having these interactions. Orange Pill app can help you find those Bitcoiners that might be near you. So go and check them out. They're on the Apple Store and Android soon. Hope you enjoyed the show, guys. Take care, and I'll catch you on the next one.